So what's up everybody? Once again, it's Celluloid Fever Dreams and I'm your host, Wyndham Jennings. We're uh, going to skip the theme song this week. Had a little technical trouble on this end before I started recording. But you know what, that's okay because it gives us a little extra time to talk about the movie for this episode. From 2016, it's The Love Witch. It's the second film in our month-long look at pastiche films, which mimic tropes and techniques used in uh, earlier eras or in other genres in order to tell their stories. If you listened to last week's episode, you know we were in the 50s with The Lost Skeleton of Cadavera. Uh, this week we've moved up into the 60s or with the, the Love Witch, which befitting a film which mimics uh, films from this era has a great tagline, which is, She loves men to death. Now, if you uh, want to go back and watch the movie before you listen to me talk about it, uh, you can. Honestly, a lot of the films I talk about, it's hard to find them on a streaming service, or they're only like one streaming service. Uh, I watched The Love Witch on Amazon, but I think it's also on like Tubi and Crackle. Uh, It's on the majority of the streaming services at the time that I'm recording this. Uh, April 2021 and I, I gotta admit I'm, I'm kind of excited about this film you know one of the downsides of doing this podcast is that a lot of the films I talk about are pre-internet and on top of that a lot of them may not have done well at the box office maybe cult films or they may be obscure films so even before the internet there really wasn't a whole lot written about them or recorded about them and uh, even today trying to find info and trivia and things to uh, back up some of the the stuff I want to tell you about the movies can be really hard. Finding info on something like, uh, you know, for your height only or uh, God Monster of Indian Flats can be like, you know, pulling teeth because there just isn't a whole lot out there on them. Haven't been a lot of people have seen them. Even on more recent ones, like the one last week, Lost Skeleton of Cadavera, uh, there's just not a whole lot out there uh, on the internet or, or in the sources that I can have access to about the film. But this one, uh, being 2016, you know, I was actually able to locate a lot of stuff about it. Interviews with uh, Anna Biller, who's the uh, writer-director of the film, uh, different articles on the uh, cinematographer, things like that. So I've got a lot, finally got a, a film with a lot of notes of stuff I can share with you guys. And on top of that, some of the stuff in the film... Uh, some of the choices she made are things that I was interested in, things I could look up in books I have around my own house and uh, you know, share with you just some you know, extra information, a little trivia, a little more depth to some of the things and some of the choices in the film. Yeah, I can remember when I saw the trailer for this film, uh, probably back about the time it first came out, I wanted to watch it. And it's just one of those films that... I was interested in, I like the style of it, you know, I love movies from the 60s and 70s, love that look of them, but it was just one of those that just would fall, you know, if I'd see it and think, oh, I need to see this, I want to see this, and then, like, forget about it, because some other film would come along, say, oh, I want to see this first, so sitting down to watch this, uh, I, I really, it, it turned out to be even more enjoyable than I thought it was going to be, I just went into it thinking it was going to be you know, kind of a straight uh, kind of hammer horror or, uh, you know, 60s style uh, horror film. And it was so much more to it, a little bit more depth uh, than you usually get out of those kind of films. The look is spot on. I mean, I, I have to applaud uh, Anna Biller and uh, M. David Mullen, who's her cinematographer. 
it, you could plot this film, plot this film down in like late 60s, early 70s, and other than uh, the cars in the background and uh, one scene where a character pulls out a cell phone, it is almost indistinguishable from films from that era. I mean, it is just a beautifully shot film. The, the colors, the costumes, everything. It's a gorgeous film to look at. But we'll come back around to that. Uh, first off, let's get into the synopsis of the, uh, of the film, just a little summary before we take a deeper dive into it. Uh, Elaine is a young woman whose husband has passed away recently, and she's moving from San Francisco to the town of Arcata, California. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's been a couple of days since I've seen the movie, so that might not be the correct pronunciation. But uh, her friend Barbara is letting her rent an apartment in her house. It's a huge, uh, you know, I don't know what style. I want to say gothic, but I'm not 100% sure of that style mansion. But she just wants to find love again, someone who's going to love her completely, love her as much as she loves them. And she's a witch. So in order to ensure that she finds love, she uses uh, magic and potions in order to enhance men's feelings for her. And since this is a horror movie or a horror comedy tragedy film, I guess you could call it. It doesn't always go well, and she winds up leaving a trail of broken men and dead bodies across the small town. Now, surprisingly, this is only Anna Biller's second full-length feature. Uh, she's been making short films since the 90s, and they all tend to revolve around uh, strong female characters. They also all tend to be uh, rooted stylistically in this time period. Her first film was called Viva, and it was a... Uh, play on the 70s uh, sexploitation style films, the sex comedies, you know, films like The Happy Hooker or or Emmanuel. Uh, I haven't seen that one yet. I, I don't even know if it's streaming anywhere. I want to see it. Now, films are a collaborative effort, but uh, Anna Biller put in a ton of work upon this film. She wrote it, directed it, produced it, edited it, did some of the uh, set design, uh, built some of the sets, built, uh, I mean, uh, made some of the clothing in the film, actually had a hand in some of the music. Uh, and usually when you see one person's name in that many roles on a film, it's usually a red flag that this is not going to be a good film. But she just bucks that trend. It's a beautiful film. Uh, it's a good story. It strikes the perfect balance to me of uh, mimicking films from that era, especially the uh, horror films of that area. It definitely has some hammer horror influence uh, upon it but it also manages to uh, have a more modern eye upon some of the uh, characters and their actions and uh, some of the ways that society looks upon women and uh, what's expected of them and good lord i'm starting to sound like some kind of serious film podcast we need to stop this real quick now the thing is you know i'm a straight white guy from the south and middle age and i enjoyed this film but i'm sure there's tons of things that i just did not get out of it just things that flew right past me that uh, some of you listening to this would probably pick up on in, in fact i can guarantee there was as i did research on this film and read interviews with uh, anna and uh, some of the other people involved in the film some of the points they brought up some of the choices that especially she said she made in the film that yeah there there's a lot of stuff that just went past me uh but when i heard about it it become obvious when it's pointed out but again like a lot of stories uh depending on who you are and how you're raised and your own personal blinders i guess you're going to get things out of it i didn't 
and that's a good thing. I mean, that, that's really the way stuff like this probably should be. At the end of the day, my big question is, was it entertaining? And so that's really what I'm going to stick with with this podcast. I'll uh, tell you some of the things I come across and, and a little trivia about it. But, yeah, I'm, I'm not really going to dive into the symbolism and, and the uh, meaning behind the film. I just don't really feel like I'm equipped for it. But we're introduced to Elaine in the uh, opening shots as she drives her blood-red Mustang up the coastal highway of California. And in voiceover explains, well, her origin. That she's leaving San Francisco after her marriage failed and her abusive husband uh, unfortunately passed away. And this is intercut with uh, images of him drinking from a goblet and falling down dead. She explains that shortly after that is when she discovered witchcraft, which helped her get over her heartbreak and helped her start her new life. And uh, this is the first of several scenes in the film that uh, feature full-on nudity. And I'll go ahead and warn you, much like uh, films from this era, they are not afraid of the full frontal male nude. You can expect to see that uh, just about every time. They they uh, cut to the witches and the coven and the rituals that they do. And also like films from this era, they just pick average-looking people for these scenes don't go in expecting a lot of uh, washboard abs and uh, supermodel legs and looks and what whatnot she also explains that because of the stress of what happened to her marriage that she had a nervous breakdown but now she's cured and uh in my notes put a big question mark beside that which uh, becomes very very important as the film goes on yeah, one of the things I liked about this opening scene is that the shots of the car driving up the, the coastal highway are intercut with Elaine in the car in front of a very obvious rear projection screen, which uh, if you've seen films from this era or even all the way back to the 30s, is a technique that you're familiar with of just the you know the road behind the car being projected up and the people pretending to drive. No matter how curvy the road gets, they don't ever seem to make any sharp turns with the steering wheel. And the film itself, like I've mentioned before, how good it looks. Uh, Biller and Mullen actually shot it on 35mm film in order to get the uh, richness of the colors in order to really perfectly mimic uh, films from this era. Uh, Elaine herself is played by uh, Samantha Robinson, who most recently, at the time of recording this, is in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, She can also be seen in the horror movie uh, Cam, uh, she's a really good choice for the character uh you know uh even outside of this film and other things i've seen her in photos on the internet as i was researching the film she sort of has a look about her of a 60s starlet you know that that's the only way i can think to to put it is she has that kind of uh air about her of someone from this era a movie star from this era and it really comes through in the costuming and the makeup uh, and Biller herself said that was one of the reasons why she uh, hired Robinson for the role when she come in to audition for it. Is that she just blew her away with her presence and with her take on the character. And she actually worked with Robinson. They watched films from this era, uh, workshopped the character together over the course of uh, pre-production, and you know developed Elaine uh, to the point that Biller actually went back and redid a few of the scenes based on things that her and Robinson come up with in the workshops and the pre-production. The other big takeaway from the opening scene is Elaine smokes like a chimney. I mean, I lost count of the number of cigarettes she stubs out in the ashtray while going through this opening scene. Uh, She's also pulled over by a policeman 
this will be important later, uh, who informs her she's got a taillight out. She shows up at the house, and we're introduced to Trish, who is played by Laura Waddell, and uh, she's the real estate agent. She's the one who's showing Elaine the apartment, and uh, she explains that she's also an interior decorator. And uh, she is the one who, with under Barbara's instruction, decorated the apartment. And the apartment is very... I really like to look at the apartment. I mean, I'd live in it. But it, it, it does have a very almost kitschy kind of 60s vibe. A lot of paintings, a lot of uh, you know bold colors. Uh, like I, said, I, I really liked the look of it. it and again keeping with the film you can tell it's obviously a set it's not a room inside the house waddell doesn't have a whole lot of credits to her her name uh besides this she's done an episode of torchwood she's done the uh, film saving mr banks which was about uh, you know walt disney acquiring the uh, mary poppins license uh, she also was appeared in the uh, del toro film crimson peak uh i liked her i liked her for the role uh Biller is on record as saying the character wasn't originally British, but again, like with Robinson, once Waddell come in, she just thought she was perfect for the role. Trish treats Elaine to lunch at the Victorian Tea Room, which is apparently a ladies-only tea room, or, uh, I don't know, yeah, tea room, restaurant, whatever you want to call it, and uh, they have a harpist playing light, uh, live music. Uh, Elaine explains again to Trish that her husband had passed away. She's hoping to find love. It uh, gives her, her her idea of uh, what makes a perfect relationship, where she's basically submissive to uh, her partner's every need, almost a Stepford wife type situation. And, of course, Trish, uh, being the more modern woman, doesn't agree with that kind of thing. And it, it's interesting because in doing research for the film, or rather on the film uh, for this episode, Biller herself was inspired by uh, relationship self-help books, self-help books that she was reading, in which one of the pieces of advice was for the woman to love him less than he loves you. And in that, she saw a parallel to uh, female characters who would literally love someone to death in some of these older films, and that became the basis for the Elaine character, the idea that this woman, uh, and, and also another theme that she brings up in some of her interviews, that this woman would basically subsume her identity into what her spouse wanted and became something she wanted to explore. Trish, on the other hand, thinks that Elaine's just been brainwashed by the patriarchy. There's uh, several musical cues, well, there's a repeating musical cue uh, of a zing of the harp strings, which generally seems to foreshadow bad things to come, like when Trish's husband Richard shows up and him and Elaine lock eyes, there's the zing of the harp and uh, a couple other little things, sort of uh, musical cue that Elaine may not be the good person that we think she is though you know given the flashbacks of her husband drinking something falling over dead and you know not really thinking she's a good person to begin with I just got to say I mentioned the harp is not I just saw it again in my notes just now I hope to god that's a wig on that woman because that's one of the worst hairstyles I've ever seen and it just looks so fake and I couldn't find out in, in my research if it was but I hope that it was. It, it's worth watching this scene if you can find it just for how bad the wig is. Back at her apartment after this, uh, Elaine prepares some potions and, uh, well, what I thought was a potion, and what I'm going to call a fetish bag. She fills a bag with various things and seals it shut. And uh, safety first, she wears gloves as so she, she uh, you know, prepares all these things. Uh, no goggles, you know. I mean, why would you wear goggles when you've got you know, eye makeup as 
on point as she does, but we see her head downtown to the Moonrise Apothecary, which is a magic shop, and a real magic shop, because they spell magic with a K, so, you know, serious business. And Elaine tries to sell, well, almost like a thrift store. She goes in and uh, tells the proprietor that she makes natural soaps and voodoo dolls and witch bottles and wants to know if the woman would carry them. And she takes them on a trial basis and says that if they sell, that she'll order more from Elaine. And, uh, oh, oh, I almost forgot. I, I just, it just dawned on me. Uh, we also, before she heads down there, we're shown that she's got a throw rug in her apartment that is a pentagram and is uh, got, like, magical symbols around the outside of it. I actually tried to recreate it, recreate it for the cover art for this episode. And it's just really nice to look at. And I was wondering where in the world they got it for the film. Because I thought, you know, that'd be really nice to go in my office where I do my recording at. I just like the look of it. And, uh, yeah, it turns out that that is a one-off that was made just for the film. So, I'm a little disappointed in that. But Elaine attracts attention wherever she goes. Why wouldn't she? I mean, she's an attractive woman. But they kind of play that up in the next couple of scenes as she meets Wayne, who is played by Jeffrey Vincent Paris, who's been in, in, uh, Days of Our Lives, uh, the television show Party Down, a guest appearance on the show Castle, and also iZombie. I forgot all about iZombie. I'm going to have to go back and catch up on that show. Or, I guess now it's off the air. I need to go back and just watch the whole thing. And I say meat, but it, the way it's shot and, and the editing of the scene where they make eye contact, I almost want to think she used her magic power to attract his attention, to make him come over and talk to her. Given that she just flat out says the reason she started studying witchcraft is she wanted magical power. It's not really that hard of a leap to make. But uh, he explains he's got a cabin about an hour outside of town. And she convinces him to take her up there and she'll make him dinner. Now, once there, she gets him to drink out of a flask. And he thinks it's just alcohol and remarks about how strong it is. And uh, she makes dinner and they just eat in the living room. They just kneel on the floor and and, uh, eat on the coffee table which is really risky because they're both drinking red wine and uh, they got a white rug. But while while they're eating, uh, the, the drink she gave them starts to kick in. She explains there's hallucinogenics in it. Now, you'd think uh, he'd be a little bit more upset about this, but he doesn't. He just rolls along with it because he's, well, pretty much guaranteed. She's explained that, no, they're, they're going to sleep together. And she gets up and starts to do a seductive strip tease. And one of the funnier lines of the film, when she opens her coat, the whole inside of it is like rainbow fabric. And he talks about it that's so bright that it's a it's bright enough to blind him. Uh, and I want to talk about this scene and, and a little bit more about the cinematography because I was surprised the uh, shots here, there's a lot of like rainbow effects around the lights and just uh, you know simple but effective special effects for uh, from Wayne's point of view of what the drugs is doing to him. And I was really kind of surprised to find out that a lot of the visual effects in the film were just done in camera. Uh, David Mullen uh, explained in one of the articles I read that he did as much as he could with different lenses, uh, diffraction filters, uh, gels over over the lenses, even uh, one lens that produced a kaleidoscope effect to do as many of the uh, magical effects or as many of the, uh, like in this sequence, the... Uh, hallucinogenics as they could just right there on set while they were filming 
and it works really effectively. I mean, it it is a, a low-tech, low-budget uh, solution, but, oh, my God, it works, and it, it gets the point across. And, it, and uh, again, stays right in line with the era that they were mimicking. In fact, uh, both David Mullen and uh, Anna Biller have said that some of the films they used as inspiration for the look of this one include uh, Hitchcock's The Birds and Marnie, uh, both of which also tend to have stories of young women coming to uh, coming to a small town to start a new life. Uh, British films such as Horror Hotel and Dracula, Prince of Darkness, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, some of her films from the 60s, and George Romero's Season of the Witch. Wayne winds up having a bad trip uh, from the hallucinogenics and spends a night alone in the bed, sweating and crying out for Elaine. And uh, Elaine is over him already. She doesn't like the fact that he's so needy and reliant upon her. She sleeps on the couch that night. Uh, the next morning, she actually makes him breakfast and makes him drink something when she goes up to check on him. Uh, he thinks he spent the night alone. That whole sequence was just a nightmare. He, he thinks that she is there with him. He still doesn't want her to leave, but she goes downstairs. And when she comes back up to check on him, uh, Wayne's dead. Whether it was the hallucinogenic, whether it was, you know, she slipped something in the drink she gave him with breakfast, I don't know. She's upset at first, but uh, I don't know, she just kind of takes it in stride. She winds up going out and uh, getting some herbs and some weeds out from around the cabin. Uh, she uses uh, her own blood and her own urine to make a witch's bottle. And I want to talk about that for a bit. Uh, not her peeing in a jar, we're not that kind of podcast. But I want to talk about the magic in the film and the, the fact that it's not clean, it's not pretty. This isn't Harry Potter, uh, this isn't Lord of the Rings, this isn't so many uh, pop culture depictions of magic where you know the, it, just waving a wand and saying a few words and something happens or you know mixing a potion but they don't really go into what goes into it. Uh, this is very much uh, folklore magic. This is, you know, the kind of things that got people uh, accused of witchcraft. And, you know, it's just another level of the research that went into the film. You know, because historically magic isn't pretty or simple or clean. You know, to give you an example from a book I own called The Amazing World of Superstition, Prophecy, Luck, Magic, and Witchcraft by Leonard R.N. Ashley, uh, historically, a love potion would be something like dry and grind into powder the liver of a cat, mix with tea, pour from a black teapot, and get the one you wish to fall in love with you to drink from it, and they'll be yours forever. Other ways of getting somebody to fall in love with you is to urinate in their footprint under a full moon, uh, slip your fingernail clippings into some of their food, slip some of your bath water into something they're trying to drink. So to see this uh, and to see the witch bottles, which she makes to protect Wayne's body after she buries him in the backyard uh, from witchcraft or from evil things, which is also historically something that uh, more prevalent in Europe, uh, I believe. I think from my research, they said that less than 20 witch bottles have been found in America, but it serves the same purpose. See stuff like that in this kind of film. Uh, which makes it so different from the way, as I said, the way magic is depicted in so many other stories, even horror films, uh, is great. And, it, and to me, it just added something to it and made it a little different, made it a little bit better. Uh, back in the city, we're introduced to uh, Barbara and uh, Guyan, I think I'm pronouncing that right, who uh, are the head of the coven that Elaine's a member of. 
and we've seen in the flashbacks before. Uh, she tells them about Wayne, uh, tells them, you know, what went wrong. And, and Barbara just literally asks her, uh, should Elaine be doing this? Should be, she even be attempting love spells considering, you know, how her marriage ended and what happened in San Francisco, which is a fair point. And apparently we also find out that witches are a problem in this town. And there's a, a very strong anti-witch sentiment which isn't helped by the fact that they pulled somebody out of the river with a pentagram carved on their chest. And and I just got to point out, I love the fact that Barbara uh, starts listing off that she'd been teaching classes to the locals, you know, about witch. And she's, and, you know, she's listing off things like potions and spells, et cetera, et cetera. And then a little of all that, it's just, and candle making, you know, because why bother calling upon the dark forces of nature if you can't do it in a pine-scented or, you know, ocean-fresh breeze-scented room? There's also a very on-the-nose uh, kind of moment in this scene where Barbara explains that uh, the town's fear of witches is really just a fear of women's sexuality and power. Uh, back at her apartment, Elaine partakes in a flying ointment. And again, uh, this shows historical witchcraft as she rubs it on herself and instead of actually you know, taking off and flying like you would expect with something called flying ointment, she instead hallucinates. You know, She has flashbacks of uh, her husband Jeremy, uh, she has flashbacks of Wayne, and we find out that on her dresser are pictures of the, I guess, the men she's been with. Uh, one of them, of some guy who, who I don't know who he is. I don't, he's never shown in the film other than his picture, a picture of Jeremy, her ex-husband, which is autographed for some reason. I, I don't quite understand uh, why you'd have an autographed picture of your spouse, but she does. And a picture of Wayne that I have no idea where it come from or, or why she would have it. Uh, and and it, it would be easy to sit here and say things like this or, or a scene where you see her unzip one of her boots in a close-up shot and just the one boot. But then the next shot, both of them are unzipped as mistakes or, or to uh, laugh at them as inconsistencies. But really they're not because if you watch these old movies – you know, moves from this era, these things happen. So the fact that they bothered to recreate some of these inconsistencies in this film is just, to me, just another level of quality, another uh, little nod to what they're doing and, and the inspiration behind the movie. But we go to the police station, and the guy who pulled Elaine over at the beginning of the film is now uh, investigating Wayne's disappearance as one of his students, because he is a professor at the local college, reports him missing and he's been missing for two weeks and they uh find the cabin they find the body uh find the witch bottle they find nothing to connect it immediately to elaine they're just trying to investigate it elaine meanwhile started an affair with richard who is uh trish's husband because trish is in dallas for a uh interior decorators convention and uh just like wayne Elaine gives him a potion, except instead of a flask, she gives it to him in the biggest wine glass I've ever seen in my life. I mean, he could raise a family of four in this wine glass and still have room to park two cars in it. I mean, it's a massive wine glass. And again, like earlier with Wayne, uh, it's not overt, but I'm given the impression that Elaine is using not just the potion, but the question she asks Richard and her reaction to him and and uh, just different little cues in the scene makes me think that she's using magic because it seems like she can just perfectly read him and ask him the questions to get the response that she wants. It's really subtle, uh, 
might not even be what's intended. I might be reading something into it, but for me it worked and it's just, and it just sort of goes along with the way that it's shot. Richard is played by uh, Robert Seeley, and and this is basically the biggest thing that he's done so far with his career. The police officer, Griffin, uh, heads over to the local college where a Professor King is an expert in occult studies, and he explains what the uh, bottle that he found is, this witch bottle, and that uh, it's you know, supposed to protect somebody from witchcraft and from evil influences, and et cetera, et cetera. The uh, lab report comes back on Wayne. turns out that he, fi- he died of heart failure. And they found devil weed in his system. And I got to point out, devil weed, uh, at least according to the film, I didn't bother to research it. Because when I first heard that, I was like, is this an anti-marijuana thing? Is this like some sort of, you know, because back in the 70s, it wouldn't have been that hard to imagine somebody doing this or, you know, late 60s. But uh, no, apparently devil weed was the, uh, one of the plants that she was gathering uh, after Wayne's death. But then we're treated to a lot more nudity as we uh, head up to see Barbara and uh Galen performing a ritual with the coven. A lot of dancing, a lot of nudity, a lot of people you probably don't want to see naked. Uh, Elaine doesn't participate. She just watches, and we have flashbacks of uh, Wayne. But after that, and I, I had to laugh because it's just such a shift in tone to go from uh, magic and nudity and dancing to what is basically a church potluck of people walking around, uh, you know, eating finger foods and, and just stand around in little groups talking you know it's it's just a jarring bit of uh, normalcy after the preceding scene but uh elaine's explaining to barbara that she can't keep seeing richard that he's become obsessed with her which immediately cuts to richard drinking himself into a stupor while writing letters to elaine and crying a lot of crying and trish just poor trish back from her convention is just unsure of what to do to help her husband meanwhile the shopkeeper over at moonrise herbs rats out elaine when the cops come around asking who made the bottle uh griffin goes to her apartment and elaine at first acts like she doesn't know wayne she does admit to making the bottles but says she's never made one with urine and that's good enough for griffin as he asks her out on a date they uh, head out horseback riding and run into a renaissance fair out in the middle of the woods because you know that happens and it's Elaine's coven uh, in disguise. Well, I don't know if it's really disguised. They're celebrating midsummer, and rather than, I guess, doing it naked in the middle of the woods in the middle of the day where people can stumble upon them while horseback riding, they decided to uh, pretend it's a Renaissance fair. You know, because that's normal. But to celebrate midsummer and the uh, god of love, Griffin and Elaine agree to a mock wedding, and they have a hand fasting ceremony. Which, to me personally, was a nice little thing to see because when my wife and I got married, we did so with a hand fasting ceremony as well. Ours was a little more elaborate than what they do in the movie. In the movie, they just do the uh, one rope. I think we had three of different colors that symbolized different things about uh, our lives together. It's really pretty. Griffin admits he wants to get married one day. He'd like a wife, but he's not interested in love. Love makes you soft, and being a cop, the last thing you want to be is soft course this doesn't sit well with elaine but you know it's a horror movie what's the worst that could happen out of this right uh griffin's partner finds out about elaine's ex-husband and wants her arrested for the murder of wayne uh, griffin explains that the commissioner wants the whole thing dropped is they have an uneasy truce with the local witches and he doesn't want to cause any trouble with them which is just a plot line that kind of come out of nowhere which also kind of fits in with these type of films Poor Richard, unable to get Elaine to fall back in love with him, kills himself. And Trish finds him. 
We then transition nicely from the blood on the floor of the bathroom back to the tea room where she's explaining all this to Elaine, saying she knew Richard was having an affair, but she didn't know with who. Elaine talks about Griffin before leaving suddenly. Trish discovers that it, well, Elaine to let Trish try on one of her rings and Elaine leaves without it. So, and again, this is only the second time in the film that you could uh, ever say that this was a modern film because Trish pulls a cell phone out of her purse in order to try to call Elaine. I mean, it honestly wasn't for this and it wasn't for the fact that you see some modern cars because Elaine drives an older car, Wayne drives an older car. Uh, I think the cop cars are a little, are more modern, but I mean, most of the main characters drive older cars. All the uh, fashion, everything is is you know, from the, the time period that she's mimicking. So this is only the second time in the entire film that something pops up that sort of knocks you out of the idea that this is an older film. Trish goes by the apartment to drop off the ring and finds herself trying Elaine's makeup, uh, trying on the wig that Elaine wears. I forgot to mention that. Elaine wears a wig. She's got this in all the shots and then most of the film she's got this really long flowing hair. Uh, but she wears, I'm, I'm guessing it's a wig. I, I, I'm not going to call it extensions because it's not actually we, woven into her hair. It's not actually connected. She can put pull it on and take it off. But she also doesn't wear a uh, like a cap. So it's not like a full wig. It's like a, a hair piece, I guess is the correct word for it. But uh, Trish tries on the full wig and tries on some of her clothes and is, is basically... I, you know, having some fun, uh, trying something different out with herself when she discovers the shrine of all the pictures, including her husband, and also Elaine's magical paraphernalia. Elaine comes in while she's doing all this and uh, naturally tries to kill her. They struggle, and you know Trish leaves, saying that she's going to you know get revenge on Elaine. Elaine, uh, once Trish leaves, tries to use magic in order to kill Trish. Uh, it doesn't work. We don't see her again, but. Griffin mentions her a couple of times, so I'm guessing the spell didn't work. We see the coven again as they perform a ritual that they don't really explain, but given uh, given what they say while they're doing it, I'm kind of thinking Elaine's bonding herself to Griffin, like uh, I guess a second level from the mock wedding. You know, I got the impression she's trying to, I don't know, bind their souls together or their fates together a little better. Griffin's down at the bar where the patrons are still really, really against witches for some reason. Uh, he meets Elaine there, and he explains that the DNA from the jar is linked Elaine to Wayne, so he knows she had something to do with his death. He also says Trish come down to the police station and explained that Elaine had a role in her husband's suicide. Of course, Elaine points out that he can't arrest her for murder as Wayne died from a heart attack, and... There's no evidence that she had anything to do with it, but he does explain that he can arrest her for not reporting the death and for illegally burying him. He also explains to her that he thinks he's immune to love so that her tricks and her magic won't work on him. Of course, unfortunately, one of the bigoted bar patrons overhears that she's a witch and it very quickly turns into a mob as they throw her to the floor and start stripping her, cover her in alcohol. I mean, it's very quickly turned into a witch burning as everybody in the bar is chanting burn the witch in the middle of this modern bar just from the basis of the cop saying that oh yeah she's a witch uh her and griffin manage to escape and head back to her apartment where we see that griffin's picture has joined the uh, rest of them on the mantle 
but he refuses her potion when she tries to give it to him, which just completely upsets her. And really, uh, given her reaction to it and his staring at her, you get the impression that when he said he is immune to love, that it wasn't just a boast. You know, she looks upon him, his face turns into a skull, uh, it flashes to all the others, changing to the others that she's killed, and she just staggers back. I mean, just thrown back by the the fact that he just refuses to love, cannot be swayed by it. And and of course, this is the the moment. This is the point where she finally breaks and stabs him to death. And you know, being a film in the style of this era, you know, for some reason around this time, a lot of films had the ambiguous endings or even worse, where the film just seemed to just end with like no resolution. Uh, here, we tend to go with the ambiguous ending as she sits there holding the knife, blood running down her hands, and flashes back to the Renaissance Fair where her and Griffin are married for real this time. And she rides off into the forest. Well, she gets up on the back of a unicorn and uh, Griffin leads it off into the forest. And we cut between this and her sitting on the bed, staring at nothing, holding the knife, and then the movie ends. So, you know, make of that what you will. So, you know, that's The Love Witch. And uh, like I said, for if you're like me and you're a fan of the films, especially like the Hammer Horror or, uh, you know, horror films of the 60s and 70s, the Technicolor films, you know, this is as close as you're going to get in modern times to uh, one of those films. If you've, even if you're not a fan of those films, uh, this is still an interesting movie. Uh, it's beautifully shot. It's uh, well acted. And you got to understand when I say well acted, I mean, it's acted completely in the style of uh, the films from that era. I mean, like I said, if you could go back and digitally change the cars in the background to uh, era specific cars, uh, if you could take away Trisha's cell phone and instead shoot a, you know, do a little scene of her running to a payphone and calling Elaine. You could almost put this movie back, um, you know, in that era, or or slip it into a collection of films from that time period, and nobody would pick up on it. It's just well done, and if the acting seems wooden and the delivery of some of the lines seems a little stilted, you know, again, it's just that era. It's mimicking that era, the flubs, all of it. It's it's a really well done film. A pastiche style film and you know, once again we've reached the point where we have to ask the important question the one question about uh, every film we talk about is it entertaining uh yeah I mean, do i really need to repeat that this is one i would recommend to anyone whether you're a fan of these kind of films or you're a fan of older horror or not uh it, it's just hard to believe that you know, one, this is only Anna Biller's second full-length feature because it's just incredibly well done. Uh, two, it's one of those rare films where it is very much one person's vision. In this case, you know, Anna Biller, because she did so much on it, writing, directing, set design, you know, all of that. But she also surrounded herself with people like David Mullen, who knew that vision. Mullen is like Biller, a fan of films of that era and is kind of an expert on them. 
And uh, besides this film, some of the other things he's done includes the uh, horror film Jennifer's Body, uh, Aquila and the Bee. Uh, he's done work on the uh, Amazon Prime series, The Marvelous Miss, Mrs. Mizell, which is another period piece. So he knows that era in filmmaking and, uh, you know, the lighting, the camera techniques, etc. So it is her vision, but unlike a lot of films where you see one person taking on all these roles, trying to make their vision of the film come to life, she's also smart enough to surround herself with other people who understand that and, and can help her do that instead of doing trying to do everything herself. So it's a film that is rare... It's one of those rare films where one person taking on all these roles and it is still a good film. So yeah, Love Witch, like I said, it it's it's on Amazon, it's on uh, I think Hoopla, it's on Tubi, Crackle. Just if you have a a video stream, movie streaming service, check it. it the odds are it's on there. And I'm really looking forward. She hadn't done a full length one since this one, but it was. Uh, Love Witch took her seven years to make because she was doing so much. And also, uh, from one of the articles I read, she uh, had a health issue that uh, slowed the production of this film. And she's supposed to be working on a new film. And I'm really looking forward to it, especially if she continues like this one and uh, Viva for uh, mining the uh, 60s and 70s for inspiration. And uh, before I do my final wrap-up, I want to do a read a quote to you from uh, Anna Biller, which I found in one of her interviews. I absolutely love. I think it speaks so much to uh, me and to, you know, the, the films that I'm wanting to talk about and to my own podcast. And uh, I, I just want to share it with you guys because I just, I really liked it. Really liked what she is saying. She says, make whatever movie you want to make, make whatever your own thing is that you're most obsessed with what you love the most what turns you on the most be as weird as you want make your own movie people should stop copying other people and try to do what's inside of their own head artists are always successful when they do what is really personal to them the only way you can try to make something original is if it is personal because we're all different and i think there's a lot of truth to that you know find what you're passionate about and do it you know write draw uh Play an instrument, sing, whatever. If it's something you enjoy doing, if it's something you want to do artistically, do it. You know, sit in a room and talk to a microphone to a handful of people about movies you like watching. Don't worry about being good or the best. You know how you get, get good at something? You do it. You do it over and over again. You get a little better every time. And if you don't ever do it for anybody but yourself, if you don't ever show anybody or post it on the internet or whatever, well, it doesn't matter. If it's something you want to do and you have that creative spark inside of you, well, pursue it. But I'm Wyndham Jennings. This has been Celluloid Fever Dreams. We're going to start wrapping it up. Uh, you can find us on various social media sites. You can find us on uh, TikTok at Celluloid Fever Dreams. You can find us on Twitter at uh, C Fever Dreams. Uh, you can go over to Buy Me a Coffee, and uh, that's C Fever Dreams. You can uh, well, buy me a popcorn. Facebook and Instagrams, both celluloid fever dreams. Uh, I'm sure there's others, but you know what? I've been talking long enough. Let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, glad you joined me again this week. I uh, hope to see you again next week. Next week, we're going into the 70s, and we're going into the exploitation 
uh, homage, Black Dynamite, starring uh, Michael Jai White. It's a really funny movie. It's, it's one I'm looking forward to watching again. Really enjoyed it. Uh, take care of yourselves. You can choose to be a lot of things in this world. Kind is probably one of the best things. Uh, wherever you got this from, if you don't mind, subscribe and leave a review. And if you liked what you heard, well, tell a friend. If you didn't, well, tell an enemy. But until next week, uh, I've been Wyndham Jennings. This has been Celluloid Fever Dreams. And uh, I'll save you a seat. Hope to see you. Bye.